Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in 1 Peter, still in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, it's your word. And Holy Spirit, you have the power to illuminate. And we pray you would that every heart and mind this morning would be captivated by the things that we hear, this gospel truth, and that we would be made to think deeply of our lives and what it means to be in Christ, especially in light of a world of unbelievers that are watching. Father in heaven, there's power in prayer, and so we come before this sermon and ask for your means of grace to work deep in us. Change us. Compel us. Make us honest. And shower us with your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I begin to sense early in college that the Lord was calling me, or likely calling me, to vocational ministry, I remember lots of people saying things like, you know, you're, you're going to be in a fishbowl. Uh, everybody is going to be watching what you do. And they were right. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I want to let you in on a secret. You may know it, you might not. But if you profess faith in Christ, you're living in a fishbowl. Your life is in a fishbowl. And people are watching. People in your family, children, in-laws, aunts, uncles, cousins, spouse, neighbors, co-workers, people in carpool line and in the bleachers, at the gym, at the library, at the grocery store, in restaurants. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, people are watching. And they always have been. What Peter tells us in this passage is that the Gentiles, which means essentially unbelievers, they're watching your conduct. Here's what's amazing, and only God could invent this. God actually uses us, fallen, sinful people saved by grace. He actually uses us and the very lives we live Before a watching, unbelieving world, he actually uses us and our conduct to bring unbelievers to belief. He actually uses us to bring unbelievers to belief, to take unbelievers and move them from a place of unbelief when they can't give God glory to a place of belief where they can give God glory. Only God could invent this. So I want you to think about your life for a moment. I want you to think about where you're going to be tomorrow morning. 
I want you to think about the consistent places that you go to each day. Places of work, school, where you eat, where you work out, where you have recreation. I want you to think about those places. And I want you to picture the faces of people you know who are unbelievers. People that, because they've told you or by something you've witnessed, they they likely are not in Christ. Now, I want you to picture them doing what they're already doing, especially if they know you're in Christ, and that is watching you. And I want to ask you this question. What do they see? What do they see? Because of the history of redemption and the way God saves people, what Peter is telling us is that people can see something in us that is so honorable that they want to ask what it is about us that's different. And then through those conversations, they can hear the good news of the source of that goodness, which is not ourselves, but Jesus. And they can come to saving faith. Imagine, and some of you have had this experience, imagine you're listening to a new believer tell their story of rescue. And, then, and you know them, and so as you're listening to their story, they say something like this. I watched the way, fill in the blank, someone's name, you, perhaps. I watched the way they handled this decision in the boardroom. I watched the way they handled this conflict. I watched the way they had this ability to not compromise when it would have been easy to do so. And I knew then there's something different about them. And imagine they're talking about you and there was something about your honorable conduct that made them say, I want what they have. And in seeking to discover what that was, they realized it was Jesus. And then they came to saving faith. Some of you've had that experience. Might've been your children. It might have been a a child that was in Sunday school. It might have been a neighbor, but they saw Jesus in you and said, I want what she has, or I want what he has. That happens. God uses our honorable conduct to bring unbelievers to belief in all sorts of places. But... I know you're thinking this. What about the times your conduct wasn't honorable and that unbelieving world was watching and what they saw affirmed what they sort of already believe, that all Christians are what? Hypocrites. They say one thing and they act a different way. Who they are on Sunday at 11 is different than who they are Monday at 11. And you know, if people are looking closely, they're going to see things in us that are disconnected. And so both sides exist. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, when we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. I'll say it again, when we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. He's right. 
God's grace and sovereignty is powerful enough to overcome the hypocrisy and the disconnects. God still uses the mercy the way he uses it. But this is significant. Our conduct matters. And the unbelieving world is watching. They always have been. This was written over 2,000 years ago. And the Christians that Peter is writing to are on their sojourn, just as we are on ours. And there is an unbelieving world, he calls them the Gentiles, that are watching. And those unbelievers already have presuppositions about what Christians think and how they live. And that is centered so often on hypocrisy. And so once they discover that you are a believer and they see you and they watch you, your conduct has by God's grace and for his glory the ability to convince them of what you have inside you is actually worth pursuing. You feel pressure? You really shouldn't. Pressure will lead you to the wrong place. It'll lead you to self and flesh. I'll get there in a minute. But let's not let the pressure off yet. Let's think of it this way. I want you to grade yourself. Wherever you went a moment ago when I said go to a place you'll be at tomorrow morning, a place you are consistently at on a Monday morning, I want you to think about the people you see and the way you interact. And I want you to be honest. God knows anyway, and they probably see it anyway, so be honest. And I want you to grade yourself. As it relates to honorable conduct, as Peter is talking about here, how are you doing? To make it simple, let's grade it this way. Are you an S, satisfactory? Are you an S minus, need improvement? Are you a U, unsatisfactory? Think about it. Where are you? Places of work, the gym, in traffic. S, S minus, a U. Those three words, that grading sheet is not in the Bible but it was in my fourth grade report card. <laughs> Just before Christmas, the second nine weeks we'd finished, Mrs. Prentice had given me my report card to take home. The front of the report card was awesome. I mean, it was a great report card. It was really, really good. Arithmetic, English, spelling, penmanship. We even got graded in penmanship. All A's, maybe one B in science or social studies, I'm not sure. But there was another page. And the page that was on the back was really bad. It, it was really bad. Because it was the part of the report card that talked about conduct and citizenship. And for the first time in my life, and in the life of my family with five siblings, I brought home a U. Unsatisfactory. My parents turned to the back of the report card always before the front, and they expected to see one thing, an S. It wasn't an S. I know you're not surprised, but it was a U. That entire Christmas break, I spent time learning what it would mean to not have a U the next nine weeks. <laughs> In those days, they made their point very clearly. I knew what was expected. So January hit, a new start, a new page. Nine weeks goes by, 
45 days of classes, 45 opportunities for me to get an S. And my teacher, Mrs. Prentice, handed out the report cards. And I did not get a U. And I did not get an S. <laughs> I got an S minus. I took the report card after all of my classmates left and went up to her desk. And I said, Mrs. Prentice, I can't have an S minus. She looked at me as if to say, Mark, that's what you deserve. You've made some improvement, but you are not an S. And I just stood there. I cannot take this home. <laughs> now, I would love to tell you that my teacher took her pen and seeing the minus sign, drew a vertical line and made a cross <laughs> and said, the cross is the way of salvation. Come to Jesus. I knew if it was an S minus, I would go to Jesus. I told her I can't take it home. You know what she did? She took her pen and she didn't draw a vertical line, but she scribbled out the minus. And I was elated. I took the report card home. I didn't mind the back page being on top. I gave it to my parents. They looked at it, looked at both sides, and then said, why did you mark out the minus? <laughs> I didn't. Mrs. Prentice did. They didn't believe me. They called her. And she said, he got an S. I didn't come to Jesus that day, but that was the first time I ever learned about mercy and grace. I deserve the S minus or worst. She literally interceded. She covered me. And you know what happened? I got what I deserved the next nine weeks. It was an S. Her grace and her mercy changed me. Conduct matters. It mattered a lot to my parents. It matters more to my God. Our conduct matters. Our, the significance of our conduct is so great that the Lord has told us unbelievers can bring me glory simply by seeing the life that you are living in me. So let's talk about that. What does it mean to have honorable conduct? Verse 12, Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, not if they speak against you, but when, and this is 2,000 years ago, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of visitation. Peter has identified two dimensions of conduct. The first one is in verse 11, which we've looked at the last two weeks. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. My friends, we're aliens, we're strangers, we're exiles, we're sojourners. Because of that, we as aliens, our conduct is to look alien to the world. Paul said, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The world often doesn't want to abstain. In fact, they think that's where you ultimately will find happiness. So there is a part of honorable conduct where we are to say no to things that the world would say yes to. That will make us look like foreigners, like strangers. 
And in abstaining, they might see something of the goodness and glory of God. But there's another dimension. It's not just that we are to abstain, but actually that we are to engage. Peter is only echoing here what Jesus said. Jesus said, blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. There's a good deed that's taking place there. He goes on to say just a few verses later in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. When Peter uses the word in Greek here for sight or see, that word means to look at intensely over a long period of time. So what that means is that the unbelieving world that you and I are in, all over our city, in many different places, the unbelieving world is looking intently at our lives. And what they see, we pray to God's glory, is men and women abstaining from the passions that they should abstain from, but also men and women who are engaged in good deeds, engaged in good works. Peter is only echoing what Jesus said. So when people look at your life, what do they see? Do they see this honorable conduct? Well, the answer is sometimes yes. And sometimes no. Because on the sojourn this side of heaven, none of us can consistently live that honorable character. We will fall short. And this is really important. Is Peter calling us to something that we can't do? There is only one who lived perfectly. There's only one who had ultimate honorable conduct. And it was Jesus, the second Adam. What Peter is getting to here is an identity, a union that is far beyond what most Christians grasp. We fall short of thinking rightly about ourselves in two ways. First, we hear a verse like this and we think, my scores aren't that good in the places I'm at, in that fishbowl where the world, the unbelieving world sees. And so I've got to get that straight. I've got to get that right. I am going to evaluate my life and I'm going to fix all that's broken and I'm going to make sure that I no longer have any disconnects. That no unbeliever or believer could look at my life and say, I, I see some hypocrisy. I see a lack of faith. I see some immorality. I see that you're laughing at jokes you shouldn't laugh at or watching things you shouldn't watch. I see greed. I see materialism. I'm going to work on it all so that there's nothing that would bring dishonor to the Lord. And so the focus becomes on flesh and on our ability. Later in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, 
No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. So we miss it when we turn to self. We also miss it when we don't really understand who we already are in Christ, in union with Jesus. This is amazing. When Peter opens up in verse 11, he gives us an identity statement, doesn't he? He calls us sojourners and exiles. But before you read those two words of identity, and we know what that feels like to be on that journey, he gives us another word of identity first. What is it? Beloved. Beloved. Those who are in union with Jesus. And those who are in union with Jesus are in union together with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and with other believers. Beloved, the beloved identity is permanent. Sojourner, exile, alien, foreigner, pilgrim are not permanent. Beloved is. And so when we are called to live an honorable life in the midst of unbelieving Gentiles, in the midst of an unbelieving world, we need to admit that our conduct in and of ourselves would never be good enough, and it would never be what we would want people to focus on. Instead, we want them to focus on the union that we have in Christ. Because it's in Christ that the fruit of this conduct can come. What did Jesus say? I am the vine, you are the branches. This is amazing. We are not just connected to Jesus. Jesus is not just a good morality and example that we put on our life. Jesus is in us. The vine and the branch are not just connected. They're infused. And the life of Christ, the only man who ever lived perfectly with honorable conduct, is in us. And so when people happen to see good fruit, and they will, because we're abiding in Christ, what we will do is point them not to our self-discipline, We'll point them to the source, which is Jesus. We won't just point them to Jesus as an example. We'll point them to Jesus who's reigning in, in heaven. He's king and his Holy Spirit is in us. And we can say with true humility, apart from him, I can do nothing. Apart from him, I cannot bear fruit. Apart from him, I could never have honorable conduct. Apart from him, I could never say to you, you are right. That decision was hypocritical. That disconnect in my life is littered with hypocrisy. Would you please forgive me? And my friends, we're gonna have to do that. Here's why. Peter said, so that when they speak evil against you, 
It's not if, it's when. And this is the crazy thing about the world we're living in. This world of unbelievers doesn't like, they don't like God, and they certainly don't like the centrality of Christ as the only way, truth, and life. Therefore, I believe the rest of your life until Christ returns, you're going to sense and feel more of what Peter is talking about than ever before. And it's going to go beyond just the awkwardness of somebody perhaps rejecting you because of what you believe, to them actually calling you evil, even though you're doing good. Let me give you an example. My first mission trip with PCPC was to Peru, 2003. We went into the jungle, deep, deep into the jungle. We went to an orphanage where about 40 or 50 young boys, street boys, who'd been taken off the streets and taken up the river to this beautiful location where they would be fed good food, given plenty to drink. They would work and get educated, but they would also be fed the Word of God. This ministry was going so well, but there was a witch doctor very close to that orphanage. And the witch doctor could see how the villagers all around, the tribes that he was in control over, had began to be drawn towards this orphanage and these missionaries. They were taking care of the people all around. So what the witch doctor did was he took a can of Spam. I'm sure a, a can of Spam that came on one of the trips where the, the people had come to help serve. And he took that can of Spam and he went around to all of the tribal leaders and all of the people in those villages and here's what he said. Those missionaries are fattening up those children and slaughtering them. And this is what they're making. I didn't make that up. I heard that story with my own eyes. I saw that witch doctor. That's evil. We were there doing good. He was calling us evil. And the darkness that surrounded that area of the jungle believed him until the consistent truth of honorable conduct was used by God to make those people see that he has to be lying, and he was. In their story of rescue, they could say that these men and women loving us well pointed them to something greater than themselves, even in the way they treated the witch doctor with love. You see, when we get attacked, our God taught us how to respond, and it's alien. It's alien conduct. And there on the cross is Jesus hung, the perfect man, dying for us. He said against those killing him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we live honorable lives with honorable conduct, 
It's only because we are in union with Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Don't be tempted to rely upon your flesh. Quickly resist that and celebrate this word. You're his beloved. You are in union with Jesus. He will be the source of that conduct that has the power to bring saving people, lost people, to saving faith. Lord Jesus, when we consider how many people are here and how many were in the last hour and all the different places we are about to go, where we will travel tomorrow, offices, schools, lunchrooms, parks, boardrooms, bleachers. We're going to be surrounded by those who don't believe. And Lord, we pray that they would see the source of honorable conduct in us and the beauty of what it means to be in Christ. And they would ask the question, what is different? And oh God, would you make us so humble that we would quickly say, it's Jesus in me. As we sing, Lord, would you compel us to think on these thoughts and not to rush quickly to what's next? And God, if we need to pray together, bring people forward, encourage that they might sense your mercy and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.